Hello, I'm David Lee and welcome to Sustainable Scotland, the podcast brought to you by The Scotsman, Scotland's national newspaper since 1817, now bringing fresh and relevant content to 21st century audiences. Sustainable Scotland looks at how Scotland is doing in its efforts to be cleaner and greener and whether this generation is genuinely leaving the world in a better state for the next. This episode is brought to you in partnership with legal firm Shepherd and Wedderburn, and we're talking offshore wind power. I'm joined by Scott McCallum, a partner with Shepherd and Wedderburn, who's been involved in a large number of offshore wind projects. We talked about some of the barriers to getting turbines spinning in the North Sea more quickly to help address the UK's long-term energy needs. In April, the Prime Minister launched the UK's energy strategy with his usual fanfare, saying the UK could become the Saudi Arabia of wind power and making bold claims about massive increases in renewable generation capacity powered by offshore wind and talking about large numbers of new skilled jobs. I began by asking Scott how much offshore wind we currently have in UK waters against the government ambition to be generating 50 gigawatts by 2030. To give some kind of context, one gigawatt is a billion watts. So that's a lot of power. So where do we stand? It is a big ambition. I think currently we have just under 11 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity fully commissioned in UK waters. It's a little bit tricky to see what's uh, what's coming in the pipeline. Um, Certainly, there's roughly around about 10 gigawatts currently in construction or, or moving towards construction. There is then a big swathe, a big chunk of, of potential capacity, um, which is, is waiting in the wings, either having been consented um, or and now waiting a, for a contract for difference, which is the sort of uh, price equalisation subsidy type regime, or indeed in the consenting process just now that there will be some attrition there and projects quite often won't end up being built out to the the full consented envelope so certainly in terms of what's what's in the water 11 gigawatts and what's certain to come forward is about another 10. Okay and we'll come back to this later Scott but is is the challenge here when we hear the scale of that ambition it's just how damn long these projects take from first being mooted to actually appearing in the water. It's like it can be 10 years, even more, can't it? 15 years in some cases. It, it has certainly been in the past. Um, and I think when you look at the, the, the scale of that, the, the government's ambition there, the, the sort of 50 gigawatts of installed capacity by 2030 being the, the new ambition sh- shooting up from, from 40 gigawatts. I think some of the, the new projects, the projects at the, the very earliest stage having just been um, gone through auction processes for the new crown estate leasing rounds so these projects just uh, absolutely in their infancy just now I think are going to have to contribute towards those 2030 targets so I don't think we can afford for um, these projects to take the, the sort of development time that has been taken for, for projects in the past. And you've described that, Scott, as glacial in an article that you wrote, that, that development and deployment of, the, of offshore wind being going at a glacial pace. You know, uh, how can we speed it up? It's maybe a little bit harsh to say it's, it's been glacial across the board. I think each project that has come forward in the past has had 
um, so some big issues that, that have caused delays. So we've had judicial reviews of some projects, um, which meant that they they, they were not uh, not back a bit in terms of their, their program. So you've lost a few years there. Um, the consenting processes themselves have taken a very long time, um, and the, uh, the the sort of as I say, price equalisation mechanisms. Um, sometimes uh, the government have not necessarily supported enough capacity within these these auctions to to bring forward uh, all of the the projects that were ready to to deploy so i think in that way i think a lot has already been done government have now moved to annual contract for different auctions which is a big help in terms of programming so projects will no longer uh, necessarily have that uh, that couple of year delay waiting for the next auction round so what are the potential impacts, Scott, of this very slow pace of development and deployment of offshore wind? Why does it matter? I think we're, we're at a point in offshore wind where it can genuinely contribute a, a massive amount uh, to the energy mix in the UK um, in terms of clean uh, energy, in terms of affordable energy, and, and also in terms of security of supply. There are massive societal benefits potentially flowing from offshore wind now as well. I think you can see from what's been achieved down in the Humber, um, where it's been described as an industrial renaissance with the, the, a grouping of offshore wind projects coming forward uh, within a sort of close proximity to one another geographically, but also uh, coming forward in a pipeline that, that gave a bit of certainty to supply chain to actually invest. Um, so you can see what can be achieved. Similarly, some of the commitments that have been made through the Scotland process to, to local content, again, it's just a, a massive incentive to get this right. But I think that can only happen if we manage to deploy offshore wind consistently over a, a lengthier period of time. We can't afford to have the peaks and troughs that we've had to date because we'll lose the supply chain, we'll lose the developers. Uh, and we'll lose the, the potential benefits to, uh, to, as I say, clean energy that can be achieved um, within, within the next, um, next few years if we, if we get it right. And there was a bit of a sea change at the start of this year, Scott, when the new kind of rounds for offshore wind were, were announced, both in Scotland and, and England. Um, more capacity being put forward more capacity being effectively approved at the early stage but also what you said that commitment to local economies and local supply chains as well why did the announcement in January this year why did that represent such a change I think it's always been an aspiration to to get more local content into offshore wind people saw that there was a big opportunity there but it, it was difficult because developers were being asked to rely on a fairly immature supply chain at the time. Um, so it was a bit of a catch-22 because developers couldn't afford to take that risk. We're talking about multi-billions of pounds that, that they put into these projects. Uh, and if one part of that supply chain falls down, the, the consequences are, are, are fairly stark. Similarly, the supply chain didn't have enough confidence to invest um, speculatively because they didn't know how much offshore wind was actually going to come forward. So I think all the stars really had to align with government making longer term commitments to offshore wind and, and people getting the confidence that this was a big part of the mix and it was here to stay. 
and that's just allowed everyone to, to take the steps that they needed to take to, to, to come together. And you mentioned earlier on, there has been already, you can see economic benefit in places like the Humber, uh, I think Teesside as well in the kind of Middlesbrough area is starting to see those benefits. And now it may take a while, but can we see places like, you know, uh, Eyemouth and Montrose and, you know, Leith and places like this really reaping the benefit in Scotland over the next decade or so? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, that's certainly the plan. Uh, and I, I think that one of the good things about offshore wind as well is that the economic benefits have tended to be targeted to, to areas, to sort of port towns, which have suffered uh, quite a lot in recent years where, where there's been some um, big uh, industries leaving the areas, uh, the fishing industry maybe not not doing as well as it once did. So I, I think the, the jobs are being targeted in areas where there is a need, which is great. Um, but yeah, I, I don't see any reason why Scotland won't benefit similarly. And equally, um, I think the likes of Aberdeen, I think there will be a lot of diversification from the oil and gas industry over time as well. So I think in Scotland, we certainly have the skills, the skilled workforces that, that, that can make a, a big contribution. So what you've just said there, we've laid out that aspiration. We've got potentially more sort of gigawattage going in into the North Sea and whatever. We've got potential economic benefits. It is further down the line. So how do we get that speed in? What are the barriers, Scott? What are the main barriers? And you've touched on these a little bit already to speeding up those consents. You know, what are the main challenges? I think the the consenting piece is one of the, the long lead items. It's where a project has to do an awful lot of work, even pre-application. So you need to gather in all of the environmental information that you, you, you need to, to support your consent application. And that includes some, some big chunky items like two years normally worth of bird surveys. So there, there's some work there that you have to do that is very difficult to, to shave time off. But I think what, what we need to achieve during that pre-application process is uh, trying to close out a lot more issues uh, so that we're taking less into the application phase, into the examination phase. Um, so a big thing is just a, a, a sort of commitment by all stakeholders, I think. So by developers and by all of your different um, statutory consultees to actually try and close, close out issues pre-application. Mm -hmm. um, there's already extensive pre-application consultation, but I think there has been a tendency um, just to, to leave things to, to be sorted out at examination. And that has led uh, in recent cases to a lot of delays to the, the process. So the timeline set out for these decisions has been exceeded in, in pretty much all of the recent offshore wind farms south of the border, certainly. Um, so I, I think there's a lot that can be done in practice just by by a bit of a, a shift. And I think that will happen because I think everyone now realises that, that, that there is a, a, a real need. So there has to be a bit of an impetus behind the, the process. In terms of what can be done to the consenting process post-application, again, I think if there are, are fewer issues on the table, that will help. I think government, eh, both north and south of the border, are in the process of, of strengthening uh, policy support for offshore wind, um, which I think will help. Um, I think there's a recognition that there is a need, but there are a few big issues in there um, where government can give give a bit more of a steer, I think. 
Um, one of the big ones is obviously uh, impact on, on birds and in particular impacts on uh, European protected sites. And that's been uh, a reason for a lot of the delays of late because people argue over the science, they argue over the cumulative impacts and, and whether uh, in combination, so whether all of the different projects together are now having an adverse effect on some of these protected sites. If they are, there's a mechanism that you can go through to still get consent. So you talk about derogations to the, the habitats regulations, derogations to the birds directive. And again, that's just started to happen now. And I think it has to become a much, a much more polished process. I think we have to um, identify the, the sorts of compensation that you have to deliver under, under these derogation cases and government needs to help industry deliver these. So there needs to be a bit more uh, of strategic approaches. And in terms of when you're talking about birds there, what do you think of the balance at the moment? Do you think that the protection of birds is given too high a priority relative to the potential to create renewable energy, which can address climate change issues, which potentially can create a better environment for birds further into the future. How do you assess that balance at the moment? It's difficult, isn't it? It is very tricky and we are constrained, I think at present by a sort of European level protections, which we don't want to be seen to be moving away from it. I think you're right. I think there is an opportunity to take a more holistic approach to protection of the environment. Uh, protection of birds and, and actually um, put in place uh, things which will help um, create a better environment for, for birds in the round, actually help create uh, a better environment for all of the species that are arguably being affected by individual offshore wind farms. That has to be done, I think, at a, a much more strategic level. I don't think developers can, can do that alone. Uh, I think governments have to, to tweak the guidance um, and really just allow uh, people to approach this with a, a blank sheet of paper and say, OK, starting from scratch, where's the best place to put our money uh, in order to create the maximum benefit for birds? Where's where do you get most bang for your buck? OK, so you, you picked upon a few things there, Scott, in terms of those big issues. Obviously, we can maybe do more at the pre-application stage to speed things up. Uh, the government policy support is much clearer now and appear, moving towards a clear strategy. So that gives certainty to industry and polishing up the processes generally. So that a few strategies there to kind of move things forward. Are things any different in Scotland to, to England uh, in terms of the journey, in terms of offshore wind? And is there anything more specifically that the Scottish government could do, do you think, to support the offshore wind industry? I think the issues um, in Scotland are, are, are very similar. Um, so I think that the sort of hurdles that we have to overcome are, are, are pretty much the same, but the, the consenting processes are a little bit different. Uh, and obviously there are some, um, some issues that are more acute, either north or south of the border, just depending on the, the environmental conditions or the state of the grid and everything else. Um, in terms of the consenting, regime, which is the, the, the area closest to my heart, there's a very different system north and south of the border. In England, you have the development consent order regime, uh, and the big strength of that regime was supposed to be that everything was front-loaded, and once you get into the application stage, you got your decision 
within a, an agreed period of time. So it was a very set out programme. Um, that's not worked brilliantly um, of late. As I said, there have been some delays to, to all of the, the recent consent decisions. But that process generally uh, is set up to work quite well. The, the system in Scotland is, is far less prescriptive. So you get a, a Section 36 consent under the Electricity Act. Um, you often uh, go for separate town and country planning permission. Um, and you then sometimes have to go for a separate compulsory purchase order to try and wrap up some, some land interest that you need. So you don't have the same one-stop shop as you have south of the border, um, which means that you have to, to try and piece together all of your consents, which can be quite tricky to, to achieve. Um, there have also been some delays to, the, to, to granting each of those consents. So again, I think north or south of the border, what we really need to do is just ensure that there is capacity for all of the stakeholders within these regimes to, to try and um, push forward consent decisions as quickly as possible. But that doesn't mean rushing things. I think the, the important thing is these exam these applications still have to be thoroughly examined. And we need to make sure that all of the, the various stakeholders are properly resourced to input into that process and make sure that everyone's voice is heard. So I think that, that's pretty key. And another big issue, Scott, is let's assume that this power is generated, the issue of when it gets to when it gets to land, getting it into the grid. Uh, how big an issue is the the grid in terms of getting generated power from offshore wind actually into the market to the people who want it? It is a massive issue just now um, in that they are currently trying to uh, tweak the way that the grid connections are awarded. So I think uh, just now um, th there's a, a real desire to take a more coordinated approach to grid. So to ensure that every new generating station, every new offshore wind farm that comes along isn't getting its own grid connection. There's a bit of thought going into to how we can take a more holistic approach to designing the grid network and, and ensuring a bit more coordination to grid, which I think is, is a good ambition. But I think the difficulty is that can't be allowed to slow down the deployment of offshore wind. And I think the difficulty just now is it's stalling projects getting started because they don't know where they're going to be connecting. So it's difficult for them actually to get on with designing their own project and, and getting their own applications ready. So I think that that process might help in the long run. We just need to speed it up. And then the other big thing that we need to do is where um, grid reinforcements are identified we again need to make sure that they get through the consenting process uh, very quickly as well. And all of the government supports there for that too, because obviously without, uh, without those connections being ready in time, we're not going to be able to be generating by 2030 for any of these projects. And you touched there a little bit on this holistic network design. What, what is that and how can that help? Is that what you've just said? Is that actually about taking the big picture approach? It is. It is. It's about uh, trying to coordinate um, the, the grid connections and make sure that are happening in the, the right locations uh, in order to, uh, to get uh, a number of projects away. But again, that's not an easy exercise. It's, it's quite a complicated exercise and there's a lot of, a lot of different moving parts in terms of, of what offshore wind projects might come forward, what ones might fall away, and um, what the, the various uh, programs are for each of these projects 
So again, it's not an easy job, but it, it is a job that we need to complete, an exercise that we need to complete very quickly. Okay, so just to kind of come towards the conclusion, Scott, we've, we've talked there about some of the challenges, the length of the consenting process being one, the grid connections being another. Given all the challenges that we face, are you confident that the UK can live up to the Prime Minister's hyperbole and become the Saudi Arabia of offshore wind by 2030? I mean, it is a good soundbite, and I think it gives us something to aspire towards. I'm certainly confident that the UK um, have a fantastic wind resource. We now have all of the world's main offshore wind developers very focused in trying to develop projects and uh, in the UK. We have a very supportive UK government, a very supportive Scottish government. So all in all, I think all of the parts are there to, to, to actually make this work. I think there are loads of hurdles that we're going to have to overcome. But if everyone is, is aligned in, in trying to to find solutions and, and, and we're in solution mode, then yeah, I, I think we can achieve something big. And I think the, the knock-on consequences for clean energy, um, for affordable energy and security of supply, but also um, the potential to create create jobs is, is, is really uh, could be, be pretty massive. So yeah, I, I am confident and I, I think that it's set as a, a big challenge that, that I'm really excited to be involved in over the next next 10 years. That's Scott McCallum of Shepherd and Wedderburn, ending this latest episode of the Sustainable Scotland podcast. Thanks very much for listening to Sustainable Scotland, which is produced by The Scotsman. This episode was delivered in partnership with Shepherd and Wedderburn. Listen out for more episodes of Sustainable Scotland on all your main podcast platforms and email podcasts at scotsman.com if you'd like to share your own sustainability story. Sustainable Scotland is presented by me, David Lee, and produced by Andrew Mulligan.